the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, folks, right here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Always happy to plug in with you folks. And so is Pete Paquette. He's our engineer today. Does it well. Andrew Hurdaliska produces the show. Let me introduce to you Jeff Grinnell. He's in Minneapolis. Uh, He is the author of Next Gen Faith, 12 Spiritual Practices for Youth. Jeff. Welcome to Orlando. How are you? Yes, Pat. Wonderful. And uh, greetings from up north in Minneapolis. Jeff, uh, what's the background on this book? Why Why did you write it? I get a lot of questions in my work with young people, Pat, that are alarming. And the research uh, has supported it for a long time. Um, multiple outlets, research outlets, uh, Barna included, which is one of the most reputable, have shown this um, slide in the faith of each generation over the last uh, four generations. And the, the most concerning to me, of course, is Gen Z, who are our middle school, high school, and college kids today. The millennials now have moved on into the workforce. They are post-college and go up to about 38. And we know that uh, they were kind of the last landslide drop in faith. But what happened after the millennials was even more alarming because Gen Z dropped to the lowest biblical faith in any generation in American history. And their biblical worldview is now 4%. And to put that into perspective, the millennials, their older brothers and sisters, uh, are were at 19%, and their their parents, Gen X, uh, which would be my generation, were at 33%, and then the silent generation, which would be the grandparents, and you know that that um, grandparents set today, the older grandparents today, because I'm a grandparent too, um, they had a 65% biblical worldview path, so it dropped from. 65% in the grandparents today, the 4% in the grandchildren. My guest is uh, Jeff Grinnell. Grinnell. He's in Minneapolis. Jeff, your first chapter is called Daily Repentance. Uh, what are you writing there? Yeah, the first five chapters, we cover 
a what I call a cycle of discipline. And for the readers, uh, it, 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 it lays out beginning with daily all the way to lifetime in those first five chapters. So uh, day, daily, weekly, monthly, annual, and lifetime disciplines. And so the first one begins with daily repentance. And I, I began that with, because I feel like the Christian faith is, uh, it, it begins with repentance, the ABCs of salvation, right? Uh, a, admit, B, believe, C, confess. And so I feel like foundational to our faith, if we're going to rebuild the faith of a generation, that we have to begin with repentance. And you and, and man, it's so difficult today because you would think that, man, talking about repentance in America is not an easy thing, you know. You know? It's uh, not real popular. So uh, with our arrogance and our pride and our self-dependence and reliance, so I, I really wanted to build a foundation that would put young people in, a, in the right relationship with God. Tell us about your second topic here, weekly devotions. Yeah, you know, I went back to... Uh, a very popular book a few years ago, and many of your listeners will remember Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And it's about 42 years old. And uh, when I was putting this together, I thought that that book impacted me in college. And so I called Richard Foster. I called his office out in in, uh, Southern California, but he's not doing interviews. He's, He's quite elderly now. And he is not doing uh, forewords. I asked multiple times if he would do a foreword on this, kind of the celebration of discipline for this generation. And I got, when I talked to his admin, here's, here's what he said. The devotional life of an individual is the most important discipline that we wrote on, and, and I hope that's in your book too. And I remember thinking, that's exactly what I wanted to cover in this second chapter. So what, what it is, it's, it's basically Bible reading, fasting, and prayer. And so what I wanted to cover was this idea of once we've repented and we put ourselves on this relationship with God, where do we begin? And I remember hearing that statement. I, I, I hope this is foundational in, in, you know, in the life of, uh, of uh, in the content of your book. And so that's why I called it the foundational discipline. Now I want you to talk about monthly evangelism. Yeah, wow. You know, one of the most one of the most difficult disciplines is apologetics. And we hear that word, but we don't often take our time to break it down because it, it's intimidating, uh, fearful. We don't know how to do this. Uh, you know, uh, it's proselytizing. Uh, keep our keep your faith to yourself, right? We hear that those kind of things, and I thought that's never been a, a part of my my, my Christian faith. It, it comes it comes out in daily life. Yeah. My faith. If I've always felt this way, Pat, that if my faith is not very important to me, then I probably won't share it. 
And so what we try to do is to give practical ways to share your faith every, um, every single month. So what I've, what I've, a real practical one, I can give you one practical area there, is I call, I call young people to choose one of their friends each month and to do, do everything you can to serve them the first two weeks and then share your faith the last two weeks of the month. So it's kind of a relation, relational capital the first two weeks. Um, and, and then how, how can I interject my faith um, once I've done that? I want you now to uh, talk about annual mentors. Uh, talk about yeah. that. Tell us about that. Yeah. You know, when you look at some of the top uh, CEOs in the country, I love to read, you know, I love to read on leadership. And one of the things that I've found is the importance of if you want to go where you've never gone and do what you've never done, then you have to find somebody who's been there and done it and get as close to them as possible. It, you know, if you're going to go on a wilderness trip or you're going to climb a mountain or you're going to, um, go on a rafting, uh, you know, a, a five-class rafting trip. You just don't go without seeking out a guide. And I think sometimes we forget about the importance of guides. You know, w- w- we love the uh, we love to plan the trip. We we, we love to uh, get somebody who can tell us how much it's going to cost, and and somebody who can um, you know get the tickets for us. But when it comes down to having a great trip uh, in this life, then we have to find people who walk with a limp, right? People who've been there and done it, if that's what I, where I want to go and what I want to do. So I, I set up the importance of a, coach, of a coach, of an annual mentor, every year to find somebody in, in your life. You know, young people have coaches around them. They have teachers around them. They have counselors around them. They have aunts and uncles. And so finding somebody who can guide your life for a year and then uh, find somebody else after that. Now, and let me just say, folks, Jeff Grinnell is our guest. His book, Next Generation Faith, 12 Spiritual Practices for Youth. Uh, Here's one for you, Jeff. Lifetime of Sexual yeah, and uh, I've been getting a lot of um, initial, uh, you know, uh, turning of the head and what, wait, what? You know, what do you mean by that? And uh, so uh, in, in the society that we live in, uh, coming off my last book, Gen Sex YZ, um, Gen Sexy, I, I wrote that two years ago and all about the sexual revolution in America that we're living in right now. And America's gone through about five of those. But the one that we're going through uh, right now in the past four years even is unprecedented. And so one one of the things I know, to me, the most important message that we can give to young people is the family, the importance of the family. But the second is their sexuality and their identity. And so what I wanted to do is to say, what would be a long-term discipline that teenagers need to practice 
uh, you know, finding their identity at, at an early age, their dating years, um, marriage. What would be a, a, a lifetime commitment? And I, and I thought sexuality. So um, that that I, from that identity to the marriage to their sex, right? The identity to the marriage to their sex. If they're if they're married, we know that not everybody is going to get married. Some are called singleness. But one of those disciplines is in a healthy identity is your sexuality, and a healthy marriage is, is your sexuality. And then how do I operate myself in a world that has gone wild and has has very little filter, right? Um, so we, I, I teach young people the incredible importance of their identity, marriage if they so choose, and sexuality within that marriage. My guest is Jeff Grinnell. <clears throat> We've got another segment with Jeff. I want you to stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Jeff Grinnell is with us from uh, Minneapolis. We're talking about his book, Next Generation Faith. Uh, And we've arrived, Jeff, at this topic. It's simply called wellness. Explain that. Explain that. Well, you know, some people value this uh, more than others. And I I think we've forgotten how critical... Our wellness is, and, and when I say wellness, I mean our total wellness. So, you know, not, I don't know that we all need to look like a certain model when it comes to bodybuilding, but uh, total wellness is mental, social, relational, uh, physical, and, of course, spiritual. And, and when, when I put the chat, when I was putting the chapter together, I interviewed some young people, and I said, when, when you hear the word wellness, what do you think of? And often they would say a spa, you know. They, they would talk about a professional athlete. They would talk about the, the physical part of it. And I thought, okay, this is, this is the problem in this generation because uh, mental health today is critical to – uh, so many other factors in someone's life, and so obviously coming out of COVID, we had this we had this loss of mental health. And you know, one stat that I share in the book, Pat, is how before COVID, pre-COVID, in the lockdown that was um, placed on us, that only only 11 percent of mental health facilities in America had a teenager in them. Post-COVID, 41% of mental health facilities had a teenager in them. And that was alarming to me. And if you look at our schools, I'm very involved in our schools, and um, you you saw counselors being hired in our public schools and, and in our Christian schools. And so the mental health is a discipline. I, I believe it's a discipline. What are some of the things I say to myself every day? Who are some of the friends that I place around myself? The, the circle of influence around me. I like to call it the university 
of influence around me, the different kinds of people around me. So taking care of that, that total health is critical to your, um, to, to, to your life. Explain to us uh, topic number eight, generosity. <laughs> yeah, you know, you would think, too, uh, uh, this is the one I think a lot of people, well, we'll get to simplicity, too, but a lot of people say, well, how in the world could you talk about generosity with teenagers? All they do is take, right? All they do is grab. Uh, this is not part of their common language. Well, uh, man, I differ. I differ with that uh, greatly. Um, when, when I watch the lives of teenagers today, they are quite generous. They, just, they may not have uh, a lot of money, but they have uh, disposable income for sure, uh, to the tune of uh, $30 billion a, a year, disposable income in, with, from teenagers, $30 billion a year. And it's a remarkable statistic because we know where they get that from. They get it from their parents. <laughs> and uh, what, I've, what I've learned is if we could – Instead of giving them uh, just giving them disposable income, we have to give them um, defined income. So you give it, you give a child this, and you say, uh, "Okay, here, here, I want you to. I don't want you just to spend this all on yourself, because you know, man, if you've been around a teenager, they love to pay for everybody else with somebody else's money, <laughs> kind of like our government. But we won't go into that. That. And so one of the things I've learned is this, this generosity in a teenager's life, it goes beyond even giving. Um, I, I don't just talk about finances, although in one chapter, it probably dominates it. But we talk about giving of their time and their resources. And, and uh, one, stat, one stat that's really important is that we've learned that Gen Z is a cause-oriented generation. They love. They would love to build wells. They would love to do water, uh, water research in in, um, in third world countries and uh, starve in, in um, food starved countries. They would love to do work like that in humanitarian. So we've got to capitalize on that. And now, Jeff, administration. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, I struggled with this one, Pat. It was really difficult to say. Okay, how do we take one of the most important gifts, disciplines in the kingdom, and apply it to a teenager? Well, we look at a teenager's room and their bed's undone. We, you look in their backpack. Don't look in their backpack. <laughs> that, that's dangerous. Uh, you look at their lives, their car. Look at the floor of their car. You, you look at how they organize their life, and it's and to most of them, I know it sounds like a generality. You, you know, maybe you you know a teenager is really um, impeccable with that. But to most teenagers, administration is not high on their list of Im- important things. And so I was like, man, do I leave this out? And I was reading through the incredible miracle of Jesus to feed the five thousand. And in Luke's gospel, he shares this quick little phrase that before Jesus fed the 5,000, which we know, we know that number was a lot higher than that. Uh, you know, some, some writers, uh, theologians would tell us it's 25,000 people. They were only counting the, the men at the time. So, but let's just keep it at 5,000. 
that in itself is a miracle. And Luke used this little phrase that Jesus sat them in companies of 50. That was remarkable to me, that he sat them in companies of 50. And so I thought to myself, Jesus actually used the gift of administration to do arguably one of his greatest miracles. In raising people from the dead is a, is, is a, is a, is a, a supernatural miracle. But to feed thousands and thousands of people out of nothing and to do it in an organized way and, and to do it with people who didn't believe you could do it, right, et cetera, et cetera, um, in the heat of the day, uh, the gift of administration and organizing our life is what many of the top CEOs in our country have learned. And if they're not good at it, they find somebody who is, delegation. So I, I, I tell kids, this is, how you, this is how you change your life. You make your bed. You clean your car. You organize your backpack. You get set notifications on your phone, and that will secure you for a, a great job in the future. So, yeah. How about number nine? Worship. Man, I, I love this. This is a this is a if we don't include this, it, it's uh, the discipline of worship. Then we've missed it with teenagers. Pat, I, our, all of our listeners, whether they're young people or not, worship something. Okay, uh, our our problem is not to get America to worship. America already worships. They worship themselves. They worship money and materialism. They worship people. We worship is not a difficulty, right? Wor- worship is something that is born in us. It's innate. It's 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 so common to us. So what I share in in, in this chapter is. It's not, it's not about getting teenagers to worship. It's about getting teenagers to worship God. How do we turn their affections to God? How do we turn their interests and their desires to God? And so I give some really practical principles in there on how to discipline your, your life spiritually, like really practical, so that uh, we can turn our worship from self and stuff and things and others to God. And you'll have to get the book to see that because it's very simple. Now, <clears throat> explain to us resilience. Resilience is faith. Resilience is um, it's faithfulness. Resilience is uh, overcoming hardship. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to communicate with resilience is I don't care how bad it is in your life right now. You can handle this. You can handle this. And we know that hardship, man, hardship can ground a person so quickly. Hardship can sink someone so quickly. But the the people that have learned to deal with hardship um, the the, the most are the people that are the most successful. You you know, I talk about athletes in in, uh, in, in the chapter and how the weight room comes before championship and the discipline. You know, many of us know the discipline of Kobe Bryant and the discipline of other elite, Jerry Rice and other elite athletes. 
who set themselves apart. And they're not playing for the check, right? They're, they're playing because of their gift. And, and they, they want to excel at their gift. And one of, one of the most motivational things to me is to look at hardship in the face and to say, I've got this. And so I give principles on resilience and faithfulness and talk about farmers who have to deal with that, talk about soldiers who have to deal with that, and specific stories. I walked through the death of my uh, first wife seven years ago to cancer and wrote a book on that called If Job Had Twitter. You know, what would Job say on social media today about the hardship of his life? And so to me, the discipline, it is a discipline to look at difficulty in the face and overcome. Folks, my guest has been Jeff Grinnell. The book, Next Gen Faith, 12 Spiritual Practices for Youth. Well, uh, we covered 10 of them. The only two we didn't get to were silence and the Holy Spirit. And the conclusion, the future of youth ministry. Great to have Jeff with us. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned in to AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando, stay with us. We will be right back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Hour. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. Now, here's Pat. Jeff Grinnell, our guest in that first segment from Minneapolis. We stay out west. We go to Orange County, California. Uh, Paul Wozniak is there. Paul, first of all, welcome to Orlando. It's uh, nice to meet you and chat with you. <laughs> Great to be with you this morning. Paul, this book you've written. Shabua Days. I need you to explain that to us. Well, Shabua Days, it's, um, Shabua is a Hebrew word, Pat. And the word, uh, it's a term. So it's translated in the Bible as week, as in a seven-day week. However, through the millennia, we've lost the meaning of that word in translation, as often happens. It's a term, and here's what the term means. There's two root words in it. One is means complete, and the other means the digit seven. So we've got seven and complete. And the word is always used in Scripture in reference to a time period. So what we have is three things. We have a complete time period of seven. And it's not any complete time period of seven, which could be days, years, or millennia, but it's a unique complete time period of seven in that it is Six periods of work, and then one period of rest. So it's six plus one. So Shabuah days, what we have here is the, is the first two chapters in the book of Genesis. We have a complete time period of, of seven days. The six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. And that is a precedent-setting event in those two chapters. At the beginning of our Bible— that is carried throughout Scripture. So we also have a complete time period of seven years, and that would be six years of work or farming or debt or servitude, followed by one year of rest or no farming or freedom or release of debt. 
And the same thing we have with uh, my the new book that's coming out this month. We have a complete time period of seven 1,000-year periods or seven millennia. So there's six millennia of work, or in this case, sin, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, followed by a final, a seventh and final 1,000 years of rest on this earth, and that's Revelation 20. So a Shabuah is a complete time period of seven, six plus one. In the, in the, the book you're referring to, Shabuah Days, it's a complete time period of seven days. Paul, uh, there are other topics covered in this book. Uh, I'm going to, let's see how many we can cover. Um, As many as you'd like. The Exodus. Yes, sir. So the Exodus. All right. So the Exodus, um, let's let's talk about the timing of the Exodus because the Shabuah is all about timing. So we, we have a reference to a day and a date in the Exodus that we can, we can identify um, uh, and we can, we can establish the months. Because the Bible doesn't provide a calendar path. It does not provide a calendar. But we can create a calendar based on all the Bible, the information the Bible gives us. So what we have at the time of the Exodus is we have the all-important um, event that we we call Passover, the seven days that God, where, where the Israel left Egypt in the Exodus, right? And so before before the the Exodus happened, of course, what they did is God God told them sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, and the day that date coincides with the day that Jesus was crucified. And this in the in the Shabuah days, I grow, go to great lengths to show that we can know the exact day and the exact date that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And I go to great lengths to establish that we we know the exact day and date that Jesus was crucified. You see, that's how the Bible works, Pat. You see, there's precedent, there's patterns, and there's prophecy. In this case, the sacrifice of the lamb at the time of the Passover was a prophecy pointing to Jesus who would, who would die on the cross almost 2,000 2, years later. Now, here's another topic I want you to get into that you cover in your book. Biblical weddings. Yes, 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 in the Bible. In the Bible, a biblical wedding is a complete time period of seven days as well. It's a Shabuah. So we have the reference to the 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 first reference to a wedding is in the is is in the the two weddings of Jacob. Jacob married both Leah and Rachel, right? So we've got two weddings there, and people. Oftentimes, and I've, I've, in, in commentaries I've read, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of confusion over what happened in those, in those instances of Jacob marrying Lee and Rachel, because people don't understand the meaning of a Shabuah. So in this case, here's what, here's what we know, it's because we know that term. It's, it's God told, um, or actually Laban, who was Jacob's uncle, 
um, who, whose daughters were Lee and Rachel. Uh, Jacob wanted to marry this, his beautiful daughter, Rachel, and not Leah. But, but Laban tricked Jacob into working seven years for Rachel, but he gave, he gave Jacob Leah first. He, he, he surprised him. And what, so what, what happened is this. Um, Laban tricked Jacob, and he told him, complete the Shabuah of Leah first, and then I will give you Rachel. And in order to do that, you'll have to work for me another seven years. So what we have here is we have Jacob was required to complete the wedding, the seven days of Leah, before he got to marry Rachel. And so he he married Leah in a seven-day wedding and then had a back-to-back wedding with Rachel for seven days. And then he was required to work another seven years. So the importance of that is this, and this is how it has, it has real significance for us today. You see, because a wedding is a complete time period of seven, uh, seven days. So what you have is you have the six days of the wedding. That's when the husband, the, the, the groom, takes his bride to the father's home for seven days. And that's, that's the marriage. That's the marriage. We, as believers, will go to the father's house for seven years during the period of the seven-year tribulation on earth. Now, what's fascinating about a Jewish wedding is the, 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 the wedding celebration, the actual marriage feast, is prepared for six days by the bride's father at the bride's home. You see, what happens on that seventh day, they have a spectacular feast. So after six days in seclusion of this bride and groom, they come out and they have this feast with all the family and friends that are gathered. And that's what's going to happen, you see, after, after spending seven, these the, the seven years in heaven with Jesus, we return to earth on that seventh year for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place at the bride's home. We are the bride of Christ. That wedding celebration takes place on earth. It is just so glorious. You see, Pat, everything in Scripture has ramifications for us. All those stories in the Old Testament aren't just stories. They're actual prophecies concerning our future. It's amazing. Paul Paul Wozniak is our guest. He's in California. We're talking about his book, Shabua Days. Now, <clears throat> Paul, tell us about manna. You write about that. <laughs> manna. Manna is, uh, you see, manna is significant in Scripture. It has, oh my goodness, it has so many current day, current day implications. But let's, let's talk about manna, uh, what it was. So there was this, it was this, it was this uh, wafer-like substance that came right up on the ground every morning for six mornings. And the Israelites, for 40 years, they ate this manna, and it supplied all their nutritional needs. And we know that because 
the Bible clearly tells us something that gives us a clue. It says their feet didn't swell. Swelling feet is a sign of malnutrition. So we know that this manna supplied all their nutritional needs for the, for the complete day. And for six days, they gathered it, and it didn't, and, and, and it was supplied their needs for that day. Just as we, with the Word of God, it, we, 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 we eat of the Word of God. The bread of life, Jesus is the bread of life. This manna was bread in the wilderness. And Jesus is the bread of life. And that's what we, every day, give us this day, our daily bread, Jesus said. And that's what manna was for the Israelites in the wilderness. It was this day, our daily bread. And it showed up six days. On the seventh day, manna did not show up. Because God provided a double portion on the sixth day, so they wouldn't have to work to gather it on the seventh. But that is the application for us as, as believers. You see, we are every day to look to Jesus as our support, of, of, as our daily bread. We get that bread from nourishment, from reading his word, and for being in church and just soaking him, being with other believers, just talking about the Lord. That's our daily bread, and it's glorious. Paul Wozniak, our guest. We got another segment with Paul. Stay with us here. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend. So happy when you're with us. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More with Paul right after this. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Paul Wozniak is our guest. His book, Shabua Days. Paul, I want you to talk to us about the topic of the Ten Commandments in your book. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are, um, first of all, it's greatly mis- they're greatly misunderstood in the Christian church today. And that's, that's what I want to just lead with. Many people say that, oh, the, the Ten Commandments have been rendered obsolete. You see, Jesus came and fulfilled the, the commandment. That is, that is correct. However, those commandments are still operative. In fact, all nine, very specifically, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated virtually word for word in the New Testament. Do you know how many times, Pat? No. Four times. Four times you have nine of the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament. The only one that is not repeated in the New Testament is the fourth commandment, and that's the commandment to keep the Sabbath. Mm. And so let me deal with the Sabbath first, and then we'll look at the commandments, how they apply to to church-age believers. First of all, the Sabbath. Why is the, the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, not repeated? And the reason for that is that we, the fourth commandment was satisfied completely, 100% in Jesus. You see, that fourth commandment, the Sabbath, means the Sabbath needs rest. And that fourth commandment, the seventh day, was fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus said, He is rest. For a Christian, for a believer in Jesus, we find rest every day in Jesus. That is, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Now, 
So what is a, a Christian to do with the commandment? With the commandment to rest on the Sabbath, which is the seventh day, which is Saturday. It's not, it's not Sunday. Um, and the answer is this. It tells us. The Bible tells us that we are, well, that we are to, if a person wants to keep the Sabbath, they should keep the Sabbath. If a person doesn't, doesn't, doesn't feel they need to keep the Sabbath, they don't need to keep the Sabbath. We are free to do whatever we want with the Sabbath. It is, not, it is no longer a requirement for the church. Jesus laid that out very clearly. So what this, what, um, it, it be, um, for, for a Jew— they're required to still keep the Sabbath. It's part of their law as, as the Jewish people. And many Messianic Jewish congregations keep the Sabbath. For, for the Christian, we are, we are allowed to keep it or not keep it. It's not required upon us. So how about the other nine commandments? The other nine commandments, as I said, are repeated word for word in the New Testament at least four times. And what we have is out of those nine, we've got Three that are obligations to God. The first one, do not have other gods. The second, do not create images or idols. And three, do not take God's name in vain. Those are repeated. And those, as they're obvious. They're obvious commandments that things that we've learned from other scriptures in the New Testament, that things we need to keep. They're important. So how about the other six? The other six are commandments to others. So the first three, commandments to God. The, the remaining six, commandments to others. And those are the fifth, honor your father and mother. The sixth, do not murder. The seventh, do not commit adultery. The eighth, do not steal. The ninth, do not bear false witness. And the tenth, do not covet. And so there, those are obvious for for a believer in Jesus, things that we would want to keep naturally, and they, in fact, are repeated in the New Testament at least four times. And I show those all of those references in in the book Shavuot Days. Paul Wozniak is our guest. We're talking about the book Shavuot Days. How about this one, Paul? <clears throat> the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover. Oh, my goodness. You see, when you understand Shabuah, Pat, you understand the timing of the Feast of Passover, both at the time of the Exodus and at the time that Jesus, because they're absolutely meant to be understood together. They're meant to be understood together. So what we have with the Feast of Passover, let's go to the, let's go to the first one. You've got the seven days of the Feast of Passover. Right. So, what you have on the tenth, on the tenth, on the uh, the date, it's a date, on the tenth day of Nisan, on the Hebrew calendar. That was the date of selection. That's when lambs were chosen by each Israelite household. That's also the date, Nisan ten, that Jesus rode into into Jerusalem on a donkey when they hailed him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you see Jesus in John, when he first saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is our Lamb. 
and on that very same date, the Israelites selected their lambs. Then, at the time of the, uh, the Exodus, the, for four days, that lamb would be taken into those Israelite households, and it would be inspected and, text, and test, tested for defects. It had to be a male lamb without blemish. And they would inspect for four days those lambs. They would look and make sure they had no defects. They had to be pure. In the same way, on those 14th, that's Nisan 10, 11, 12, 13, those same four days, Jesus taught at the temple where he's peppered and questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees regarding the law. And they found no fault in Jesus. Back to the Exodus. Those same seven days of Passover. On Nisan 14, on that date, it's not a day. It's a date. On Nisan 14, those lambs were all sacrificed at three in the afternoon. In the, at the time of the afternoon sacrifice, all those Israelite lambs were sacrificed, and they were barbecued on the 14th. On that same date, at the time of Jesus, Nisan 14, Jesus died on the cross at 9—I'm sorry, he was, he was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. He died on the cross at 3 p.m., the exact time that the lambs were being sacrificed for all those Israelite households. On the, on the Nisan 15, on the day— on that date, the Psalm 15, that's the date that the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus. On that same date, the Psalm 15, Jesus was in the grave. That's the second day. He was in the grave before sunset on the 14th. This was his second day in the grave. On Nisan 16, that was a high, that was a, the, um, that was the regular Sabbath in the year of the Exodus. So that was the second day as they were, they were leaving Egypt. On that same date, Nisan 16, that same date, Jesus was in the tomb. And that was his third day in the tomb. The third day, Nisan 17, on that, on that, on that, on that date, Nisan 17 was a Sunday. It was a Sunday at the time of Exodus. On that same date, it was a Sunday during the time of Jesus, and that was the date Jesus was resurrected, and he came out, and he, and, he, and he was physically present on this earth. And so what you have is we have one thing that's very important to understand. It, Jesus was crucified on a date. It wasn't a day. It was not Friday. Although we celebrate, and I do too, Although we celebrate Good Friday as the date that Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified on a Thursday in the afternoon, on 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he was buried that same day. It had to be because he was in the tomb three days and three nights. You cannot get three days and three nights any other way. And so by understanding of Shabuah and understanding the timing of the Exodus, we can know the days and the dates. It's amazing. God's Paul, Word is amazing. Paul, is the Old Testament still relevant? Oh, my goodness, Pat. Oh, my goodness, Pat. I tell you what. I tell you what. I tell people what I teach. I say, you cannot, 
and I mean this with sincerity and with, with, with all the passion that I can muster in my voice. You cannot understand the New Testament without an understanding of the Old Testament. And that's why we, we have so many um, people making errors in teaching that, that only are looking to the New Testament. Because you cannot fulfill, you can't understand how all, you see the New Testament, let me put it this way, it's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. You know, it's been said that the, the, Old, the, the Old Testament is 25% prophecy. Somebody seems to say it's 33%, a third. I say it's 50%. You see, because we don't, people understand that all those stories, as I've just showed you, are actually prophecies concerning the future. They're prophecies. The Old Testament is critically important. It's critically important to understanding Revelation. Pat, did you know that over there are over 550 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation? So do you know why the book of Revelation is an enigma to so many? It's because we don't know the Old Testament. And I didn't know this until I really started being a, becoming a student of the Old Testament 16 years ago, and it absolutely blew my mind. I couldn't believe the things that didn't make sense, and now they all, and they just suddenly make sense, because that's how God intended it. Our guest has been Paul Wozniak, the book Shabua Days. Thanks so much for joining us for this hour, the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be back next weekend for more. Have a wonderful week ahead. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.